0: We started this psalm last week, and this is uh, doesn't have an official title, but uh, some have named it the Psalm of the Oppressed, or the Cry of the Oppressed, <clears throat> and um, it's a prayer of David uh, as he cries out to the Lord uh, during a time of oppression. Uh, we mentioned that it is broken down into three basic sections with two independent, sort of seemingly independent verses, or uh, I would call them... Uh, theme verses or verses that kind of set the stage uh, for the rest of the psalm, and that would be verse number 1 and verse number 12. They're kind of standalone prayers that uh, kind of lay out what the problem is, and then he deals with the problem in the verses following. Uh, The first division is actually found in verses 2 to 11, and we find um, that the character And the actions of the wicked are expressed in these verses, and a case is brought against them. There's evidence that's shown. There were two accusations made, if you'll remember, uh, the pride of the wicked and the oppression or the tyranny, uh, the evil deeds uh, of the wicked. And uh, the idea that uh, it is the pride that is the root, and it is the wicked deeds, um, the oppression, the oppressiveness of them. Uh, That is the fruit of the pride. And uh, always pride has the root in every sin that is ever committed. It is based in pride. And uh, so he takes verses um, 2 through 11 to not only express what these two things are, but in verses 3 through about verse number 6, uh, he lays out some evidence on the issue of pride. And we made it down through verse 6 uh, last week. And then uh, verse 7 through 11, uh, he begins to lay out the evidence uh, for this wicked deeds or these evil deeds uh, of the wicked, uh, their their oppressiveness, their their tyranny that comes in. And so you'll find in uh, verses 7 through 11 kind of a sub-breakdown of that first division. The second division of the psalm is verse 13 through 15. And this is where the psalmist uh, gives a very strong, uh, by faith, he acknowledges and understands that the certainty of God's judgment is coming, even though it seems that for the present he is restraining his judgment, restraining his chastening on the wicked, but uh, that he is fully confident in the coming judgment of the Lord. And we gave the illustration last, uh, last Sunday um, that there are times when oppression comes into our life, And we need to understand what that oppression is. Sometimes it is God's testing, and sometimes it is God's chastening. And any time the oppression comes into our life or trials come into our life, we need to search our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to show us which one of those it is. Lord, are you testing my faith in order to get me to grow the trying of my faith, working patience in me? Or are you chastening me for something that I need to correct in my life? It's vitally important that we know what that is. Um, but it stands to reason, as the psalmist uh, kind of gives an idea of this, in verse number 1, he makes this question. He says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? And what we expressed last week is it wasn't that God's presence wasn't there. It was that the psalmist's perception. Of God's presence made it seem like God was not there and I think all of us can relate to some degree of things in our life where it seemed like Lord where are you at uh, I, I'm not seeing you I'm not you're not you're not delivering me from this trial this oppression and uh, I'm going through it but if you think about it whether it is his chastening or whether it is his testing both would stand a reason Why God would restrain showing himself strong in the midst of it. Because both of them have a specific purpose. The trying of our faith is there to strengthen us and to help us to grow. And if God stepped in right in the middle of it and took it away from us, where would the growth be? Where would the strengthening be? And the fact that we can grow weak so that we become more dependent upon him is important during those times. And it's not that God's presence isn't there, but he doesn't always take that away. If you'll remember, the apostle Paul uh, prayed three different times for God to take away uh, the oppression that was in his life, this messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. And God didn't take it away. He said, "My grace is sufficient for thee, for my grace is made, or my strength is made perfect in weakness." And Paul said, "Therefore, will I most gladly, uh, I'll glorify, I'll glory in these things. I'll, I'll, I'll take uh, joy in these things." that the that the, the, uh, the strength of God could be worked in his life and strengthen him and cause him to become more what he should be. If it's the chastening of God, that also seems like God would not come in the midst of it to uh, provide comfort at the same time he's uh, administering the rod of correction to us. And all of us can relate to the times our parents had to correct us as we were children. And there wasn't a lot of comfort during that time. We looked into the book of Hebrews where uh, the writer of Hebrews said uh, that, Uh, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. But afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And the idea that uh, God's comfort doesn't always come in the midst of the valley, and oftentimes will come after the valley, but his strength is always there. His presence is always there. And one of the things that the psalmist, I think, here makes note of is, in verse 1, he recognizes that it seems like God's, God's not here, he's not watching, and and these wicked are oppressing me, and where's God in all of this? But then as he gets down through verse number uh, 13 and 14 and 15, you'll find that his faith uh, just trusts that God's presence is there, that God is understanding and seeing these things and knowing these things. And I think there's a valuable lesson in there for us in that area, that even though sometimes we don't sense God's presence we need to always have faith that it's there because it is. God, is. God is not taken by surprise. God is not off doing something else and being too busy to notice what's going on in your life. He is vitally and intimately aware with what's going on. And uh, just trust that he will give you the strength to endure the trial and that when you're tried, you'll come, shining out, come forth as gold uh, tried in the fire. And this is, I believe, a lot of what the psalmist is trying to get across here. So we got down through verse number six last week. So we'll pick up there in verse number seven. So let's go down to verse seven. <coughs> he uh, has already spent six verses, or so, uh, uh, yes, verse two, four, two, three, four, five, and six. That's five verses. Um, he has spent five verses laying out the uh, evidence, if you will making the accusation evidence for the pride of the wicked. Now he's going to deal with the tyranny, the oppression, the evil deeds of the wicked in verse uh, 7 and following. So here is what is the fruit of the pride that was in the wicked man's heart. So let's see what the fruit of pride is. Verse number 7, His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Um, pride will always produce um, cruelty to others. When we begin to be arrogant about our own position, our, our, the fact that we are better than someone else, uh, it leads itself to tyranny. Um, you think of examples in Scripture uh, one of them I can think of is uh, the story in Esther of um, Haman and Mordecai, and how Haman was haughty. I mean, he was—I mean, he was the king's uh, announcer. I mean, he had the 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 uh, the uh, love of the king, and uh, people admired him, and people had to bow to him, you know. And uh, and his pride led to him coming up with and devising a scheme for the annihilation of the Jews. Uh, to, to kill all of them, and again, his pride-led. I think also of the story of Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the three Hebrew boys and how that because of the pride of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, uh, he built a statue and required people to bow down to it, and these boys would not do it. And you remember what Nebuchadnezzar's response to that was? Rather than seeing the error of his ways and saying, you're right, fellas, I shouldn't be this prideful, Uh, Not only did he have the boys go through the fiery furnace, but he was so mad about it. His cruelty was so stirred up because of his pride that somebody would attack his ego. That he had that furnace uh, lit to, uh, what was it, ten times hotter, I think it was. uh, And it killed even the men that were throwing the boys in because of how much heat there was in that uh, fiery pit. And so again, pride lends itself to cruelty. And it is the nature, the the old nature of man, the human nature, the sinful nature of man that is so bombarded with the tendency toward pride. And it is one of the great battles of the Christian life. In fact, uh, I mentioned this last Sunday, but um, the Bible says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination, and that's the word he uses. And the very first one on the list, on the top of the list, is a proud look. And we get mad at some of the other abominations, and we're very vocal about them uh, in society, and we should be. But why is it that we are not that vocal about the proud look? The reason is because that's the one that we have a problem with, that we struggle with. And as, haven't we always recognized this fact that the worst sins there are that are out there are the sins that other people have? They're never mine, right? I mean, that's the way we feel about them. We feel like, boy, my sins are not that bad. Everybody else's sins, boy, they're they're terrible, you know. And that's nothing more than pride. And so we find that pride has lend itself to uh, to some cruelty here in verse 7. Uh, he curses. Um, the Bible says, And deceit and fraud under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth. Notice this, in the lurking places of the village, in the secret places, doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. Now, there's a contrast here in verse 7 and 8. In verse 7, you see the brashness of him. His mouth is full of cursings. His deceit and his fraud is under his tongue, his mischief. He's very vocal about his cruelty and his anger. And yet in verse 8, we see the cowardliness of him. And that is, uh, while on one hand, he speaks a, a, a big talk, on the other hand, he hides to do some of his most wicked deeds. He doesn't want to be known. And it says here that he sits in the lurking places of the village, in the secret place. Uh, he, the Bible says he murders the innocent. Notice this phrase. His eyes are privily set against the, the poor. And the word privily means uh, secretly or privately. Uh, it's, not, it's not public. It's not, it's not seen easily. His eyes are privily set against the poor. And that, that's, that's the idea of the fact that he tries to make it look like he's the defender of the poor... When in actuality, he's the destructor of the poor. He's the one that destroys them. And uh, his eyes are set that way. He lieth in wait. Notice this. Secretly. And isn't it interesting that this phrase is used? As a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He is as cunning as a lion. He's as destructive as a lion. Uh, When I think of the lion reference in Scripture in this connotation, in a negative connotation, I'm reminded of Satan is spoken of in Scripture as a roaring lion walking to and fro, seeking whom he may what? Devour. Satan's not out to hurt people. He's out to destroy people. He's not content with just getting a Christian to not do all that they should do for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to destroy Christians. He wants to destroy the lives of the simple, those that don't know any better, those that have never been taught the Word of God, they don't know the moral law of God. And the Bible says he waits secretly as a lion in his den. He's ambushing the poor. And the Bible says that uh, he catches the poor when he hears that that idea of him uh, seeming, To be for the poor, he draweth them into his net. There's an enticement there. Uh, There's bait that is used. And the bait is, hey, I'm going to be your champion to the poor. And the truth is, he's doing nothing but devouring the poor. And by the way, we're seeing a lot of that in our society today, aren't we? We see a lot of people who say, well, I'll I tell you, we want to do this for the poor. We want to do this for the poor. And all they're doing is keeping the poor right where they want them and even driving their life down. Uh, the poor will be helped when God gets a hold of their hearts and when God's people begin to try to do what they can to reach them with the gospel and to show them Christian charity and to help them get on their feet, um, not to enable them to continue to live in the life that they're in. And yet this, this wicked man, this oppressor, is this kind of a, has this kind of character about him. This, this is his type of uh, mindset, if you will. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. And again, he tries to make it look like he's the noble one, the one that's uh, there on, uh, on their behalf. He humbles himself and uh, to the eyes of the poor. He hath said in his heart, now notice this, He has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. And here we start seeing the true colors of this wicked man, this oppressor. He says, God hath forgotten. Uh, He hideth his face. He will never, what? See it. Now, up until now, we look at this and we equate in our minds. Our minds go to the fact that, okay, Christians are the people that would be in the place of this author of this psalm, the one that's crying out to God. And unsaved people would be in the position of the wicked. But can I submit to you today that it is possible even for Christian people to be in the role of the wicked here. There is a way, and we mentioned this Two different times in the Proverbs, one in chapter 14 and one in chapter 16, the, 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 the writer of the, the Proverbs said, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. In the New Testament, it talks about there coming a time where deceit is so strong that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived thereby. And the idea that there are times that even Christians... can find themselves in this role. You say, well, when would that time be? It would be at the time that our pride is getting the better of us. Because all of this is the fruit of pride. The haughtiness of our hearts. And when our pride begins to swell, we better watch out. We better be careful. We better throw up that warning flag and say, well, I better get a check on myself here. Because I'll end up doing these things that the psalmist is speaking of here as being wicked. And he makes this statement in verse number 11, that the wicked not only does these deeds, but has convinced himself. He has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. God doesn't see my deeds. I can do these deeds and God's not going to do a thing about it. And that's what the wicked think. And by the way, if we're not careful as Christians, there are times in our life we will think those thoughts. And while we may not consciously bring them to the foremost of our minds, we will live in such a way that we don't think God sees. We'll allow the carnality of the world to infiltrate our lives and we'll say, well, it doesn't bother God. God's not going to see these things. He's not going to do anything about them. He says he hideth his face. He will never see it. And notice the prayer of David (coughs) in verse 12. This is another one of those standalone verses like verse 1. This is his cry to God. The cry to God is this. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up thy hand. Forget not the humble. And we know this, and we've seen this already, not only in this psalm but in other psalms, that when the psalmist makes statements like this, he is stating these things from his persp- perception of God's working. Um, God doesn't need to arise because the Bible says God never slumbers or sleeps. But in the psalmist's perception, it seems like God is staying his hand of judgment and chastening on these wicked. And he's saying, Lord, how long are you going to keep doing this? How long are you going to allow this wickedness to keep going on? And we know that God, for two thousand years now, has been long suffering, and has been giving mercy. But there's going to come a day, and I was I was listening to or I was reading some things that someone wrote the other day to a person that was lost, and uh, he said, you know, God loves you, and he's he's going to he he'll he'll deliver you from the coming judgment. And when that judgment comes, it's going to be without mixture. It's going to be without reservations. It's going to be without mercy being mingled with it. And this lost person responded back about how tyrann- uh, tyrannical and how fear-mongering it was to tell people you need to switch to your religion or else. That, that God is, is putting this ultimatum that He's going to judge you if you don't switch to your, to your religion. And, and they're, they're looking at it backwards it's not that God is coming after them for judgment unless they turn to Him. It's the fact that they are already under His judgment because of their choices, because of their decision, because of their sinful nature. They're already in condemnation. God was loving kind to come and bring His Son and make a way of escape. Yet they look at Him as being a vindictive, judgmental God with no love and no mercy. By the way, It would do us well when we share the gospel that we explain it that way. God didn't come to condemn the world, the Bible says. The world was already condemned. That was their doing. That was their choice. God came to seek and to save that which was lost. God came to bring His love to the world that was lost and undone. And oftentimes I'm afraid afraid that sometimes in our, our, our zeal to try to get someone to trust Christ as their Savior that we put so much emphasis on the fact that God is going to judge, God is going to judge, and, and He's a, judge and a judgeful God. And He is, but that's not His doing, that's their doing. That wasn't His decision to judge man, that was man's decision to bring that judgment on Him. God intended for man to live perfect in the Garden of Eden. That's what God's desire was. God is not willing, the Bible says, that any should what? Perish. That's not God's desire. But because of His justice, it has to take place. God loved the world. God wanted to make a way of escape for man, even after man made his own choice. And when we share the Gospel with people, they need to understand this, that, hey, you're in the predicament you're in, not because of God. You're there because of you. God came to save you from that. God came to redeem you from that. God came, came to make a way of escape for you. And this is the love that he had for you. We need to make sure we understand that as we share the gospel. We get down to verse number 13. He says, Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. And so in verse number 13 and verse number 14 we're going to see kind of a summary of that first section, that that verses 2 to 6 area, verses 2 to 11 area. We're going to see kind of a summary of that. He says, Wherefore doth the wicked condemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it. For thou beholdest mischief and spite to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. So we find two verses here that a question is asked and then an answer is given. The question is, Uh, Lord, where are you? I I haven't seen you, and it seems like you're not doing this. I want you to rise up. We found in verse 12, and he says, You're at the place, God, where even the wicked are condemning you. Uh, They're saying in their heart that you will not require judgment of them, and this is where the wicked are right now, Lord. You know, rise, do something about this. Keep your name pure. Keep your justice strong. Make sure that you have a good testimony in the eyes of even the wicked. And the psalmist is praying that in verses 12 and 13. But then in verse 14, he turns all the way around, and he has now an expression of his faith that the judgment of God is certain. It is coming. It's not that God is never going to bring judgment. He says, Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite to requite it with thy hand the poor committeth himself unto thee thou art the helper of the fatherless and so he goes from and as the psalmist almost always does it seems like in many of the psalms he starts with a cry to God in a in a heart that doesn't understand and then it seems like in the middle of his prayer his heart changes and he begins to get a glimmer of the the hand of God at work and he goes from a place of doubt, To a place of faith. And oh, wouldn't it do wonders for you and I to get to that place where we can cry out to God with our doubt and say, Lord, help me with my doubt. I'm not seeing this. It seems like you're not working and I want you to arise. I want you to do something. But in the midst of that, for God to do something in our heart and by faith say, but Lord, I know that you are God. And I know that you are certain going to do these things that you've promised you would do. And so we see here now a statement of faith in verse number 14. The answer to the question of verse number 13 is given. And then in verse 15 he says this, Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is what? King forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, and that the man of the earth may no more be oppressed. And so it, it ends with a psalm of thanksgiving to the king, the king of all kings. Praise is given to him. And so we find here a complete movement of the psalmist's attitude from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm, where he begins by crying out at the very beginning, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou self in times of trouble? And by the time he gets done going through all of these things, he, he gets to the place where he says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. <coughs> thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. And even though God has not yet delivered him from the oppressor, he knows that God will. And oh, what a truth to hold on to as we go through trials of life that even though God may have not yet delivered us from this trial, he certainly is going to. You say, Pastor, how can you be so confident of that? Because either by life or by death or by the rapture, we will be delivered one day. And what a great truth to hold on to. So I hope that will be a help to you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, once again, we come to You. We're grateful for Your Word. Lord, how it inspires us, how it instructs us, how it guides our steps, how we understand and recognize Your